Now again, welcome, it's good to see you and uh, as we continue our studies we're going to be thinking this evening particularly of that outer court um, screened by the linen curtains and uh, the brazen altar and the laver that are in it. So we will read first in the book of Exodus in chapter 27 please. Exodus in chapter 27 verse 1 of the chapter says and thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood five cubits long and five cubits broad each dimension therefore about seven and a half feet and whatever else that might be in meters so seven and a half feet square the altar shall be four square and the height thereof shall be three cubits. A cubit about a foot and a half for easy reckoning. Uh, so therefore about four and a half feet high. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes and his shovels and his basins and his flesh hooks and his fire pans, all the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass and the staves shall be put into the rings and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it hollow with boards shalt thou make it as it was showed thee in the mount so shall they make it and then uh, from verse 9 down to verse 19 there are details of the court of the tabernacle and the different number of pillars and sockets of brass and uh, the fillets of silver for them and so on uh, the detail of that we will mention it we're not ignoring it it's the word of God but we won't be uh, getting into the small detail of the numbers of pillars and so forth this evening what we will do is move next to chapter 30 to read of the uh, second item of furniture which is the laver and we read of that in chapter 30 and reading at verse 17 and the Lord spake unto Moses saying thou shalt also make a laver of brass and his foot also of brass to wash with all and thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar and thou shalt put water therein for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord, so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. The final reading in chapter 38, please. Chapter 
chapter 38 and verse 8 the first seven verses tell us how the divine instructions were enacted and the altar was made but in verse 8 we have an additional detail and he made the laver of brass and the foot of it of brass of the looking glasses of the women assembling which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and we trust God will bless the reading and our consideration of his word tonight so now having looked uh, in previous evenings at how the tabernacle was provided for how it was prepared, how it was preserved the position of things uh, we're now just starting to look at the purpose of it all uh, and starting now just to drill down a little bit into things that we have noticed uh, as we have at least in our sanctified imagination taken a walk through the courts of the tabernacle the tabernacle is divided into three zones and uh, the first of those is the largest it's the outer court uh, you can see it on the model here you can see it on the diagram that you might have uh, and that was the, the furthest extremity perimeter of the whole tabernacle uh, more correctly the tabernacle itself is that structure that lies within the court so sometimes the word tabernacle refers to the entire thing sometimes only to the tented structure and for those who like to drill down even more and look at the specific detail you will find as you study the Hebrew words that there is a different word for tabernacle and for tent the thought of tabernacle is to dwell the thought of the tent is more of a meeting place and uh, it seems an invariable thing that when the word for tabernacle is used it is emphasizing the fact that God is there God is dwelling there that's the emphasis it's the dwelling place of God but when the word tent is used it's used of the people coming to meet so the idea is still the same remember the purpose of the tabernacle was a dwelling place for God that he may dwell amongst his people but even in the precision of the language of scripture we're being shown that when men are by grace brought into the presence of God and fellowship with God that it is always on God's terms that God is distinct from his people you say well that's a fairly obvious point brother it is but, but we are guilty sometimes of forgetting it and Israel were too you might recall when you read Psalm number 50 that um, God calls his people together it's, it's a wonderful descriptive psalm it is speaking of a great convocation God is calling his people together gather my saints together unto me that verse that often graces the wall of a, a meeting place of the Lord's people but really the Lord was gathering his people to rebuke them gather my people unto me and he's calling on the heavens and the north, the south, the east, the west he's calling on a whole universe effectively to pay attention to this solemn convocation because God says I've got a case against my people and just as they're wondering what that case might be God tells them what it's not he said it's not because of the frequency of your offerings spot on it's not because of the ritual that you're following that's absolutely right he says the problem is that when you come to meet with me 
You're bringing me these beasts in sacrifice as though I need them. You have got into the habit of thinking that you are doing me a favour. Well said God, listen, if I want cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I don't need you to bring me cattle. I don't need you to bring me sheep. I only want those sacrifices that you bring if they are the genuine reflection of a heart that is in tune with mine. If the heart is not right, I'm not interested in your ritual, says God. And of course that in Psalm 50 would find an echo in the rebuke of the church in Ephesus in Revelation 3. Why? Well, everything outward was fine. But the problem was they'd left their first love. God said, I'm not interested in ritual. I'm not interested in how well you dot the I's and cross the T's if your heart is not in it. So now, the point we want to make at the outset this evening, as we're thinking about this first stage of approach that will eventually finish in the holiest of all, that the people ourselves as in thought we make our way now through the court of the tabernacle we've come in through the gate there's only one way in and it's the gate and um, in that sense it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ of course but as we come in to the gate what we have to remember I've mentioned it already forgive me, forgive me for mentioning it again but it's, it's, it's very critical for an understanding of this that these people are already redeemed they're God's redeemed people so I know that some commentators and, and, and illustrators and so forth they, they will make the point that really these are sinners coming in through the gate and they're approaching the altar they've got to come to know Christ crucified now, now we wouldn't be churlish and take that away from them but remember this altar is called the altar of burnt offering it's not a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ bearing our sins in his own body on the tree it's a picture of what Calvary was and what Christ was for God in his sacrifice this is a redeemed people who are looking now to come step by step into the fullness of fellowship with their God the God who has redeemed them and the very fact that there is a wall of linen that surrounds the perimeter of the tabernacle would teach us that the white of course speaking of purity and holiness it would teach us immediately that, the, that this was a separate area there is separation involved and of course we know this side of the cross and with a full bible we know that hard on the heels of salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is the truth of sanctification that we have been set apart unto God now our New Testament speaks of sanctification in different contexts if you were in say 1 Corinthians 7 you might be puzzled to read that uh, in a marriage where both husband and wife initially are unsaved and then one of them gets saved becomes a believer 
Paul says to the Corinthians that that saved wife sanctifies her husband. That doesn't mean to say he gets saved necessarily, and she certainly can't save him. So how does a believing wife sanctify an unbelieving husband? Well, the thought of sanctification there is that he is now placed in a position of unique favour. He gets to see day by day, hour by hour, how a Christian lives. That puts him in a very privileged position. And sanctification is used in that way. Uh, It's used like that in the Hebrew epistle. That the person who has been enlightened by the Spirit of God as to the need that they have of how the law and its system could never meet that need, how Christ alone can meet that need, that person has been sanctified. They're not saved yet. But there is a work of sanctification, a setting apart by the Spirit of God. That, by the way, is how you got saved. You perhaps didn't realise it then and don't realise it now, maybe. But not one of us was saved simply because we were smart enough to figure the thing out. Not one of us was saved because the preacher was better that night than the week before. We, we naturally, according to Ephesians 2, were dead in trespasses and sins, and unless there had been that enlightening ministry of the Spirit of God in your life and mine, we would never have understood God's claims upon us. Now please, that's not irresistible grace or any nonsense like that. That is simply the wonder of a divine person bringing a sinner to the point where their heart, their mind is illuminated to see their need and how Christ can meet that need. That can be rejected. In fact, if you don't see that, I don't know how you'd explain Hebrews chapter 6. Because there's people there in Hebrews chapter 6 who have been enlightened in just that very way and yet there's a danger of them turning away from the Lord Jesus and everything to do with him. Peter puts it like this. He says in the second verse of chapter 1 of the first letter, he says, We were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience. And that obedience of faith led to the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we got saved. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1. And here in time that was made real by the Spirit of God granting that necessary light upon the claims of the gospel. And he brought us to a point where all we had to do was exercise the obedience of faith. We weren't compelled to do that. We weren't driven to do that. That was our responsibility, was to exercise the obedience of faith. But the moment we did, all the full merit of the finished work of Christ and all the value of the blood of Christ was reckoned to our account and we were wonderfully saved. So sanctification is used in that way. And then, of course, the fact that we are saved, the scripture then teaches us, that we are a sanctified people. Paul made that very point to the Corinthians. 
uh, a church of God in Corinth made up of people who are sanctified, set apart for God. And uh, that we might call positional sanctification. Nothing you do, nothing I do, nothing anyone does can ever shake that or change that. The person who's saved is seen as being positionally sanctified, that's set apart for God. That's where our word saint comes from. Every believer is a saint, and the word saint is derived from the same root as sanctified, which in turn is the same word as holy. So there is a positional sanctification that we enjoy. But then we know there's also a, practi a practical side of it. It's ever the case that, that what by grace we have been made positionally, we are expected to work out practically. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. That, that though we are positionally sanctified and set apart for God, we are, by our own intelligent actions, with the help and the power of the Holy Spirit, to live lives that are sanctified and set apart for God. Hence, Colossians 3, the, 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 uh, the exhortation, mortify therefore the deeds of the flesh. The Ephesian letters, see that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you have been called. And there's a responsibility on us to live sanctified lives. Would it be fair to say that increasingly today, many Christians are walking in a way that barely distinguishes them from the men and women of the world? We are called to be a sanctified people. The positional sanctification we enjoy is no different from that which every Christian has ever enjoyed down through the church age. But the way that we live it out practically, a sense of holiness, not just perhaps in the sense of separation, just as that linen curtain separated those who were in the court from the world outside, but also sanctification is not just a matter of being separated from something, but separated unto something. It's a positive thing. So we shouldn't be living our Christian lives, uh, should we say in a negative way, oh I can't do this, I can't go there, I can't have the other thing. But rather, sanctification is a positive truth, whereby intelligently and gladly we seek to live unto God. It's the truth of Romans 6, it's the truth of many other scriptures, and the thought is not now that we are living uh, a life that is burdened with rules and regulations. But such is the attraction of Christ to Christ that we become more like Christ. The little chorus that we have all sung in the past, I'm sure, is absolutely right. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Our Christian lives are not negative, but they should be positive. Uh, an intelligent desire to live unto God and to walk in a way that shows, not that we were worthy of being called, but now that we have been called, that we see that we walk with a dignity that that demands. And so my life should be regulated by the principles of 
sanctification set apart for God through the work of Christ now that whole courtyard is surrounded in that way everything within it everything that goes on within it is in that atmosphere of sanctified living so as we then approach this brazen altar quite large seven and a half foot square and four and a half feet high and could we look into it we would see that uh, in the middle of it from top to bottom there is a grating upon which the, uh, the wood and the sacrifice will be laid and through which the ashes will fall and we've read of different utensils that will be used for it uh, essentially the altar is made of wood acacia wood but in order that it can withstand the fire then there is a, a coating of bronze upon the whole thing on each corner there's a horn four corners universality would be the thought horns speak of strength and of power but now though that altar designed to withstand the fire the horns that speak of strength though there's undoubtedly a picture now of the sacrifice of Christ we repeat it's not the thought of now the death of Christ for you and for me that's dealt with in Exodus 12 that's dealt with in Exodus 14 it's a redeemed people that are being brought to this place and so now in the thought of this sanctified life the first thing that the sanctified believer should be interested in is how and what can I do to please the heart of God with that comes the thought of worship and the first mention of worship in your Bible isn't actually the English word worship it's when Abraham having been spoken to by God bowed the knee so to worship really means to bow the knee in acknowledgement of God and his greatness and goodness and glory but here also with that desire in all that God has done for me in sanctifying me and having this desire to bring me into his presence is there anything I can present to God and so we come to the altar and it's the altar of burnt offering now to understand that we're going to have to have a quick recap of the offerings of chapters 1 to 7 of Leviticus and um, that book is one which is sadly very neglected today and uh, I certainly remember as a young believer deciding one day well I don't know what it is about the book of Leviticus it, it attracts me and yet it repels me at the same time I can't make head and a tail of it so I'm really going to get my head down and I'm going to study it and I got to about I don't know chapter 2 halfway through and I gave up again a little further perhaps but it just didn't seem to make sense to me as a Christian in the western world in a modern day I mean really what is all this about calls above the liver and, uh, and the thought of men wandering around with all these gory bits of bodies in their hands and things and I, I, I'm not being, trying to be flippant I'm just trying to explain 
how I thought as a young believer trying to get my head around the book of Leviticus. Two things I would suggest might help. Number one, we spoke about the timeline of our Bible, was it on Saturday evening? And um, when you come to the end of the book of Exodus, where the tabernacle was reared up, when everything had been finished, everything had been made, everything had been put in order, uh, and in chapter 40, when the tabernacle was reared up, we're told what day it was on. It was on the first day of the first month of the second year after they had come out of Egypt. So exactly one year had passed. The first day of the first month of the second year. Remember, the reset button had been pressed on Israel's calendar on the night of the Passover. A whole new calendar had begun, a whole new beginning, and now we've got to the first day of the first month of the second year. Keep it in your mind, if you like, as New Year's Day. Don't call it Hogmanay, that would be rude. But just think of it as the first of January. It's the first of the first. Now that's Exodus 40. Notice, the tabernacle's reared up, the glory of God comes, and the glory fills the house. God has kept his word, they've prepared the house, he's come down, his, his glory, his representative glory, that which the brethren love to speak about as the Shekinah glory, a word I must have spent hours searching for in every book that my dad had in his bookcase, I never found it, because it's not a biblical word, so you won't find it in a concordance. It's actually a derivative of a Hebrew word that means to dwell. So the Shekinah glory is really the thought, not of God dwelling there, because God is infinite and he's spirit, and well, the heaven of heavens can't contain him, we read. So, no, the thought is God, God graciously put a representative glory into that house to show that he was dwelling there. But, the book finishes by telling us that Moses couldn't go in. And he couldn't go in because the glory of God was in the house and Moses was a sinner, so he was stuck outside. So in one sense, the book of Exodus finishes on a note of failure. God has come to dwell in this house, but nobody else can come near him. The next book in your Bible is Leviticus. And uh, Leviticus begins, and God spoke to Moses out of the tabernacle of the congregation. Well, that makes sense. God was inside, Moses was outside. But when you go to the next book in your Bible, the book of Numbers, two things. First of all, you're giving another date. And it's the first day of the second month after the the second year after they came out of Egypt. So it's not the first of the first, as it is in the end of Exodus, it's the first of the second in the first chapter of Numbers. One calendar month has elapsed. But what you also read is that on the first day of the second month of the second year after they came out of Egypt, God spoke to Moses in the tabernacle of the congregation. Not out of as Leviticus begins in Moses is inside 
God is inside and Moses is inside. So what has happened in one month of Israel's history that lets the man who's outside at the end of Exodus and the beginning of Leviticus, what has happened in one month that lets that man now be inside at the beginning of Numbers? Are you following this now? Something amazing has happened. And what has happened in one month is the book of Leviticus. So the book of Leviticus, forgetting for the moment all the detail of it, the book of Leviticus is primarily how a man who is a sinner by nature and practice can nevertheless be fitted to be found in the presence of God. Brethren used to call it the book of approach. How a sinner approaches into the presence of God. So you can see the importance of this, where, where the Spirit of God now is zeroing our attention in and saying, now look, here's the pictures, here are the principles by which a person can have fellowship with God in the sanctuary. The next thing which I think is helpful when it comes to this whole business of the book of Leviticus, and especially the beginning of it, because chapters 1 to 7 are about these five principal offerings and their laws. And then you come to chapters 8 and 9, and it's about the institution of the priesthood. Because if you've got a sacrificial system, you also need a priesthood to administer it. And then you move on into various laws about cleansing, and there's a lot to be said about holiness, and there's a lot to be said about people's appetite and their affections and their activities and all kinds of things. And it's all about how God is instilling a discipline of holiness upon his people. Sanctification. Now in those principal offerings, the offerings for sin, that's chapters 4 and 5, the offerings for sin, we can readily understand that the purpose of them is to remove defilement. I don't think any of us would have a problem understanding that. There are two, the sin offering and the trespass offering, because really the idea is that the trespass offering particularly deals with what a man has done. Whereas the sin offering deals with what the man is. And we know from the Roman epistle that that is how salvation has come to us. It's through the work of Christ dealing not only with our sins through the death of Christ for me but it's also broken me free from the power of sin as a master by my death with him. So, so in the gospel we, we understand and preach how that not only what a person has done gets dealt with but what they are in themselves gets dealt with as well. So that's why you have those two offerings for sin. And we can see how that they would easily remove the idea of guilt and contamination and take away what shouldn't be there because it offends God. What is perhaps a more difficult concept is the idea of the sweet savour offerings. Now that's chapters 1, 2 and 3 of Leviticus. The burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering. And these are offerings that didn't have any part to play in the expiation of sins. That's why they were sweet savour offerings. They, they arose to God as a sweet savour. He found pleasure in them. Now where do they fit in? Well, to use a biblical illustration, you might want to make a mental note or a physical note to read Psalm 113. 
the first of the six psalms of the Hallel, which was sung at Passover time. And in Psalm 113, part of that psalm toward the end, part of the praise of that psalm, is that God not only uh, in grace looks down upon this world and, and, and takes an interest in the affairs of men, but the writer says he's able to take the, the poor out of the dust and the beggar out of the dunghill and to set him amongst princes even among the princes of my people think about that for a moment think what you would have to do to take I don't know let's take an illustration Brother Noel will have seen it I've been where he comes from I've seen it there as well you will find some little child forsaken of its parents this little child is living in a gutter how it survived so long we don't know it's probably three or four years old a feral little kid uh, it's never been washed, never been loved, never been looked after. His little child is existing in a gutter there. Now, now you and I, we're going to take that child and our mission is to have that child eventually, in maturity, stand in a royal court and be comfortable there. So what are you going to do with it? And of course your, your first thoughts immediately would be, well we're going to have to scrub the wee bear and it's filthy, it's, you know, it's just absolutely ingrained filth. That's right, yes, so that's really the thought of the trespass offering. But there's no point leaving the child in the gutter once you've cleaned it, is there? So you're going to have to take it out of that environment and um, break, break that cycle of things, so that's some of the thought of the sin offering and then you've got that little child you've scrubbed it uh, eventually you tame its hair and, 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 and it's wonderful how in a few weeks that little child, its nails trimmed it's washed and it's, its filthy rags have been taken away and it's dressed in, in nice new clothes and you look and you say well that's wonderful, the transformation and of course it is it is a great transformation you've taken away everything that defiled that's the easy bit how are you now going to get that child trained and developed to stand in the royal court amongst princes, even amongst the princes of my people? So you embark on a tremendous education program. And, and to cut the story short, you can visualize it. You, you, you can pour knowledge into that child. You've got to teach it manners. It's never sat at a table. It's never eaten a meal with other people. Uh, and, and you give it all that training and all that teaching. And, and eventually we come back 30 years later. Where's that grubby little child that we found in the gutter? And you're now looking perhaps at a fine figure of a, of a, of a man, mature, developed. He's articulate. And he listens well. And there's only one thing more to do, really, isn't there? Let's, let's clothe him like a prince. And you clothe him like a prince. He's confident. He's knowledgeable. And the day comes, we're going to put him in the royal court. And 30 or 40 years of work goes bang with one question. 
because somebody who is a prince comes along and says to him hello I don't think we've met who are you? oh my name is such and such and uh, from what royal family do you come? well actually I don't I've been trained to act like a prince and I've been trained to look like a prince and I'm clothed like a prince but I'm actually just a beggar from the gutter the whole thing blown now now we're not making this up this is Psalm 113 we have a God who can take the poor out of the dust and the needy from the dunghill and he can set him amongst princes even amongst the princes of my people How does God do it? Because he's done it with you. And he's done it with me. How does God do it? Well, what God does, he takes us from the dunghill and from the dust. And he says, not even I as an omnipotent God can do anything with this ruined creature. There's only one thing to do. He dies. But he's born again into the royal household into the royal family so we don't have to pretend he's a prince we don't have to make him look like a prince he is a prince because the beggar died and a prince was raised up by the grace of God that's what he's done with you and me that's Romans 6 again as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death His death was my death. When I was saved, I didn't understand it. Of course I didn't. But when I was saved, not only was all the full merit of the death of Christ for me reckoned to my account, but I died with Christ. Everything that I was in Adam, finished with. And I was raised with Christ to walk in a new kind of life. We are in the royal family. Now, can you see that that in order for us to stand comfortably in the royal court it's not just a question of taking away everything that offends but it's a matter of supplying everything that we lack it was supplying everything that the beggar lacked that took far far longer than ever cleaning him up now we come back to our altar this brazen altar and the sacrifice upon it is not a sin offering No offering for sin ever appeared on that altar. It's the altar of burnt offering. The offerings for sin were burnt outside. These offerings are sweet savour offerings. So as we approach this altar, what we realise is this. That I have the qualification divinely bestowed upon me to proceed in my journey into the holiest of all eventually because of what I am in Christ not so much because of what Christ has done for me but because of what I am in him and everyone who comes through that outer court by means of the brazen altar the thought is that they are to put it in the words of Ephesians 1 they are accepted in the beloved highly favoured before God because from that altar there was a perpetual fragrance arose. There was a lamb put on the altar every morning. There was another put on there every evening. 
And you see, again, the precision, the, the absolute precision of the Spirit of God as he writes this lovely book. You would read of a sweet savour offering being burned. You can read in Leviticus 4 of an offering for sin being burned. But the words are different. And they're always different. See, when an offering for sin was burned, the, the word really is the thought of the Holocaust, when the offering for sin was burned, because the offering for sin had become the personification of the guilt of the person who offered it, it had to be reduced to ashes. It had to be got rid of. It's become the embodiment of that person's guilt and sin. And so it's burned with a fierce flame to get rid of it. But that word is never used of the burning of a sweet savour offering. The, the burning of every sweet savour offering, the word used is the same word for the burning of incense. Now you don't burn incense to get rid of it. You burn incense with a slow fire to release its fragrance. And it's the slow fire that's on this altar. A slow fire. The lamb isn't being put on there to be consumed. It's being put on there so that its fragrance can be released. So that it can arise to God as a sweet savour. And there's this perpetual savour arising to God. It's all the delight and the pleasure that he found in the obedience of his beloved son, his perfect servant, who yielded himself up to God unto death, and, and who, in all the fullness of his obedience, released a fragrance to God that God perpetually finds pleasure in. But we've said it speaks of worship, and it does. Because, again, when you come back to these offerings, and you might think, well, brother, you're here for teaching on the tabernacle, and you've spent most of your time in Leviticus. But, but can you see how the one very often unlocks the other? Because the tabernacle isn't a museum or just some monument. It's inextricably bound up with the system of offering and sacrifice. So, if you look at those five principal offerings, the chapters 4 and 5... Uh, the offerings for sin they take away everything that defiles a man chapters 1 and 2 the burnt offering and meal offering speaking uh, respectively of Christ in his death and Christ in his life this is the provision this helps to provide all that I lack everything that I lack is found in Christ I may complete in him and standing like a pinnacle between both pairs is chapter 3 which is the peace offering and that's the offering that the man brings out of enjoyment of peace with God. Very quickly, because we want just to say something about the labour as well. When you read in chapter 3 and chapter 7 about the peace offering, you find this, that when the man offers his sacrifice, he takes its life, that's invariably the case, the offerer always takes the life of the animal because he's got to feel the weight of what he's doing. But then the offering is handed over to the priest and the Levites cut the thing open and they cut it into all its different parts and, and where the peace offering is concerned all the fat is for God. He says to the offerer now you can have a portion of this animal I'll give it back to you. So God and the offerer are going to feed on the same thing 
as fellowship is now. And God says, I'm going to give a portion as well to the priest who officiates. He can share that with his family. So there's this widening circle of practical fellowship as men feed upon the same thing as God is enjoying himself. And he says, now listen, all the, all the fat is mine. So what happens to it? Chapter 3 tells us. The priest goes to this brazen altar upon which the, uh, the lamb is being burned, the morning or the evening lamb, let's say it's the morning one. There's a burnt offering already upon the altar. It's slowly smouldering. And the priest comes with the fat of the man's peace offering. He puts it on the burnt offering. And when he puts it on the burnt offering, then the heat of the fire gradually rises and it causes the fat to melt and the fat flows down the flanks of the burnt offering and it reaches the fire and it causes the fire to flare. That's why Leviticus 3 says it will be the food of the burnt offering. The burnt offering is going to feed upon this fat that's been put upon it. The fire flares and when the fire flares what happens is a fresh wave of the burnt offering ascends to God. And that my dear brother, my dear sister is particularly what happens on a Lord's Day morning as we bring our thanksgiving and our worship to our God. What can we tell God about his son? That he doesn't already know absolutely in all its fullness. You find someone who's a professional in a particular, or an expert in a particular field, and somebody who knows little or nothing about it comes along and presumes to tell them about it, I think most of us would get irritated very quickly. Isn't it wonderful God's never irritated with us? We're standing on a Lord's Day morning, and as a brother speaks, he is of course speaking on behalf of the company, sisters as well, the whole company, he's not there to speak to God on his own behalf, he's speaking to God on behalf of the company. And we're speaking to God about the glories of Christ. What do we know about him, compared with what God knows about it? But you see, what's happening in principle, is just as the man with the full heart presents his peace offering to God, the fat of it becomes the food of the burnt offering. It's not offered in isolation. The fat becomes the food of the burnt offering. So even as we're giving thanks to God and appreciating Christ on a Lord's Day morning, what's happening is a fresh wave of the burnt offering is ascending on high. And thank God our prayers don't arrive in the glory as we give them. There's a man at the right hand of God and they're made perfect in him. And so even as the saints are remembering the Lord Jesus with all our limitations, there's joy and pleasure in the heart of our great God because the burnt offering is ascending to him again. That's what that brazen altar was about. And the lovely thing is, from the dimensions of it, all the other items of furniture, at least those we know the dimensions of, we can't really speak of the labour in this, we don't know its dimensions. But of the seven items of furniture, all the others would fit inside this brazen altar. Which simply tells me that whatever ministries they speak of, and we'll be thinking of those over the next couple of nights, God willing, whatever ministries they speak of, everything can be fitted in. Everything can be contained. Everything stems from 
the satisfaction that God has derived from the sacrifice of Christ that's the ground upon which we approach not what we are not so much even what Christ has done for us what he has done for us has brought us through that gate brought us in to the periphery brought us in as saints we're in the sanctified compound but the very moment we're in that sanctified place we're confronted with an altar that speaks to us of what Christ is to God and you can see the importance of it because the ashes were very precious the youngsters amongst us very understandably as time moves on you probably will never have to clean out the fire grate the older ones know a lot about that and the ashes are a pain aren't they and uh, they tend to get everywhere and it's just as you're about to wrap the ashes up that a downdraft comes and fills the living room with them all and the ashes are just a nuisance but not from this altar in fact God said to his priestly men he said see when you take those ashes out the verses we read show all the different utensils for doing this he says see when you take those ashes out that you wear clean linen any of you ladies cleaning a fireplace put a nice white dress on I don't think so but God said to his priest that's what you'll wear because these ashes these ashes speak of a sacrifice that's been fully accepted of a work that's been absolutely and fully done and God said you'll carry those ashes carefully and you'll carry them out you'll leave them momentarily by the altar so that you can go away and change your clothes he said to the priest and you'll come back with clean clothes and then you'll carry those ashes away into a clean place you see a man called Nicodemus and another called Joseph of Arimathea do you see them as they approach the cross as they come near to the cross and they've got the awful and solemn task of releasing the Saviour's body impaled upon that tree and even as they come and they approach it and they begin somehow I don't know how to remove those dreadful stakes from his feet even as they're doing it they're getting the fragrance of the frankincense that that dear woman Mary of Bethany put on the feet of Christ they tell me that the spikenard is not frankincense, spikenard they tell me that this, because it's the spike of the nard flower, the plant that, that it's the most potent form of the, of the perfume it would last at least a week there's something very tender about that these men taking the torn body of our beloved saviour and the, the, the fragrance of that woman's worship is still lingering there and tenderly they wrap it and they carry him what are they doing? They're taking the ashes away the work's been done the fire has been exhausted and they're taking the ashes away and what are they going to do? they're going to lay him in a clean place put him in a tomb where a man has never laid before what a lovely picture God has given us in this brazen altar 
where he says those ashes are special you don't just discard them but with priestly dignity you carry them away and you put them in a clean place because they speak to me of a work that's complete of a work that's finished and of the fragrance of a woman's worship and it is anticipated as we as we move slowly now through these courts eventually to come into the very presence of God that we have a deep appreciation not just of what Christ has done for us but of what Christ means to God and of the pleasure God has found in that work that he has done and so it is that the brazen altar speaks of the Christian's personal appreciation growing appreciation of what Christ is to God he'll then move on to the labour and we don't have time to deal with it tonight save to say this just to think about we might touch on it at the beginning of things tomorrow night we'll put the foot down a bit but we read in, in Exodus 38 how that, that labour isn't it interesting we had so much information about the brazen altar how wide how long how high the horns the utensils the grating all this kind of thing come to the labour no dimensions don't know anything about it except it's always a laver and its foot even in the book of Numbers when, when the camp goes on the move and very elaborate instructions are given as to how all the different bits of the tabernacle are to be wrapped up and moved there's nothing said about the laver all we want to say as we close is this chapter 38 told us it was made of looking glasses so here was this highly polished bronze, brass, whatever you want to call it that uh, because of the feminine grammar of the verse these looking glasses have been attributed to the women who gathered uh, outside the tabernacle and they're now used to make the laver the laver very clearly speaks about purification but the point about the looking glasses is this that where once they were for the study of self they've now been put to a different use and it's all about holiness it's all about purification and one of the great lessons we need to learn practically as well as learning the truth of the brazen altar and of how we have found acceptance in the presence of God in all the perfection of Christ is that at the same time there's been an end of self we have never lived we folks in this room tonight young or old we have never lived in a period where self has been so promoted all about my rights all about me look at me the selfie people who spend so much time putting out pictures of what they're eating what they're doing what they're wearing it's all about the promotion of self where you and I have to understand that self died at Calvary we don't have self we really don't have self it's not I and me it's him for me to live is Christ said the apostle God preserve us from every thought of self because you see as this 
as this progress is made from the outer court we'll go into the sanctuary tomorrow night God willing and as this progress is made these are great lessons that we have to learn and put into practice that everything I am and have is bound up in Christ and self died at Calvary nothing is mine nothing is about me I owe everything to him who satisfied God in all his claims and in the beauty of whose work and person I am now able to approach a holy God so there we are not nearly enough time to deal with a broad subject such as the uh, brazen altar and the labour we'll take up again from the labour tomorrow evening God willing but we trust that what we have covered tonight might be a blessing to the Lord's dear people shall we pray